Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Professional Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Jones. We know that you spend a lot of time listening in your vans and on site, so we thought maybe you'd like to listen to us. In future episodes of the Professional Builder Podcast, you'll hear from myself, from our editor, Terry Smith, and from our news editor, Freya Colbert. But you'll also hear from builders, plasterers, and all the other skilled trades just like you. In fact, if you would like to be featured in future, email me ljones at hamerville.co.uk and just like professional builder magazine which is still available on uk trade counters after 40 years the podcast will feature industry experts these guys will help to keep you up to date on things like tool crime the impact of inflation growing your business lead generation electric vehicles you name it we're going to cover it it will be informative and practical we promise We all know that the building industry is filled with highly skilled professionals. And for this episode, we'll be visiting someone who is recognized as a master of his art, whose work adorns some of the UK's finest buildings. Lime and decorative plastering might be associated with heritage and conservation work, but it is equally moving into the mainstream. Learning the skill is within the reach of any competent spreader, and it won't do your business any harm if it's something you can offer potential clients. We'll be taking my car to meet Philip Gaches to hear all about the lime plastering process and the continuing relevance of this traditional skill. But first, let's head to the Professional Builder Magazine news desk, where Freya Coleman will give you a roundup of the latest industry news, which includes some key dates for your diary. Take it away, Freya. Thanks, Lee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's roundup of Professional Builder News. construction industry is among the most secure jobs in the UK. Reassured has revealed the 10 best industries for job security, looking at redundancy rates in the UK from 2011 to 2021, where construction saw 65% less job losses. Northern Ireland is the best area for job security, with a redundancy total of just 7,579. Even though the North East experiences nearly double the number of redundancies, at 14,663, the region comes in second, closely followed by Wales with 15,218 jobs made redundant. Next up, the UK heating industry tells Business Secretary it's time to get serious with net zero homes. It's time to get serious on net zero homes, according to Energy and Utilities Alliance Chief Executive Mike Foster, and explore all the options available in more detail. Currently, the gas networks are examining the option of hydrogen villages, exploring how homes can be converted from mains gas to hydrogen. The EUA is calling for a similar village trial that would focus on heat pumps. The Construction Leadership Council's Product Availability Working Group has provided an update on supply issues. Overall, product availability is good and returning to pre-COVID levels, while some bricks, blocks, plasterboard and roofing products are occasionally still subject to disruption or allocation. Prices have slightly moderated across the board, but, looking ahead, rising energy and wage costs are expected to exert significant upward pressure. This will be felt most keenly by manufacturers of energy-intensive products, such as bricks, cement, glass, insulation and plasterboard. 
Before we dive into the next story, I want to tell you a little more about Professional Builder magazine. It was established more than 45 years ago and we print over 100,000 copies. You can pick yours up from all good trade counters. If you're not local, that's okay. We also send it out digitally. To receive your regular copy via email, register at probuildermag.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And why not think about contributing to the magazine? Do you have a story to tell or a tip you want to share with your fellow professional builders? If you do, contact Lee. His email is ljones at hamerville.co.uk. Hamer is just like hammer, but with one M. So that's ljones at hamerville.co.uk. You'll find it in the podcast notes. Government insulation plans a welcome step in the right direction, says the HHIC. The EcoPlus scheme has been hailed a welcome step in the right direction in improving energy efficiency in UK homes by the Heating and Hot Water Industry Council. The initiative will set aside £1 billion to improve insulation among the UK's homes. It will help to reduce energy costs household by around £310 a year and extend support to those in the least energy efficient homes in lower council tax bands. HHIC has also produced its own guide, Improving the Efficiency of Home Heating. To read the guide, visit www.hhic.org.uk. By the way, all the links we mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes. And finally, just some dates for your diary. If you can get to either Bolton, Harrogate or London's Alexandra Palace in March and April this year, then the Tool Fair, Professional Builder Live and Elex are all showcasing the latest products and industry insight for trade professional customers. Whether you want to seek out some advice on the latest tools, discover some great discounts on products, or want to chat with peers about the direction the sector is heading, then these regional trade shows are really worth the time to visit. The next set of shows take place on the following dates. Bolton Arena on the 9th and 10th of March 2023, London's Alexandra Palace on the 30th and 31st of March 2023. Yorkshire Event Centre Harrogate on the 27th and 28th of April 2023. To find out more, visit www.toolfair.info. And that's the latest news from Professional Builder. For more news, visit probuildermag.co.uk forward slash news. Now back to you, Lee. Thank you, Freya. Always lots going on in one of the UK's most important sectors. Before we head off to learn more about lime plastering, in each and every episode, we aim to bring you a top tip from your fellow colleagues. Today, we're starting off close to home by letting professional builder share their top tip with you. When was the last time you checked your access equipment? I mean really checked it to make sure it still has all the rungs and attachments in place straight and secure. It's a reasonable question because every year falls from heights is the biggest single killer within the construction industry. Last year alone there were 29 fatalities due to falls from heights, accounting for a quarter of all work related deaths over that 12 month period. Hundreds more sustained injuries that required hospitalisation and subsequent loss of livelihoods and income. 
We've also seen countless examples of people taking ridiculous shortcuts to save money on equipment in order to win a job. The height of stupidity doesn't even come close. If you're running a small building company, you have a duty to ensure that your employees have the necessary equipment to undertake the job safely and professionally. And top of that list must be ladders, towers and benches which meet EN131 professional standards. That was this month's tip of the trade. If you have a tip you wish to share with the rest of your industry, then grab your phone, open up the voice record app and say your tip. Afterwards, send it to pb at hamerville.co.uk. It'll be great to hear your wisdom. So I'm driving through the South Derbyshire countryside. It's the kind of landscape where you'd expect to find a lime plasterer applying his trade. There's lots of old buildings. There's lots of small villages with period properties and listed buildings. We'll be coming up against a 19th century farmhouse, which is destined to be a wedding venue now. And I'm very intrigued to see exactly what's been going on. We're here at Marston Hall, which is a very imposing country house in South Derbyshire. So Philip, tell us what you've been doing here. So we're completely replastering the exterior of the house with a lime-based material. It was covered in cement, the new owners have had that removed, and just replacing it with a more harmonious material. So tell us why lime plaster is so suited to this kind of project, why it should be on this build. So if you imagine when this house was built, it was built with a soft red brick, which was very breathable, a lime-based bedding mortar, which would have also been breathable, and rendered with a lime mortar. So the whole set of materials were harmonious, working together, to enable the movement of moisture from the ground and from the atmosphere, through the wall and out by evaporation into the atmosphere again, keeping the house relatively dry and damp-free. In the middle of the 20th century, the house was re-plastered with cement, a strong, hard, non-porous cement render. This caused all sorts of problems with increased moisture levels within the core of the wall, which led to not only decorative damage on the inside, but also some decay in the internal wood structure. So that's been removed, it's been put back to a breathable lime render, um, and now everything is in good shape. Those properties are just the kind of things that are causing lime plaster to move more into the mainstream though, isn't it? And there's no reason why you can't exploit those kind of benefits on a new build, is there? Well, that's right. I mean, new buildings, to be frank, don't need to be covered in a breathable material because they're built with a cavity wall construction, which removes the need for that. However, lime is a beautiful visual material and creates a really nice sort of appearance on the outside of the house. So yes, of course you could use that on the outside or the inside. It's slightly more expensive than the modern sort of gypsum wall boards that we're seeing put up. But the properties of lime are visually nice and also, of course, good for one's health with the natural breathability of the materials. So in terms of working the material, how does it differ if you were a plaster used to gypsum? What, in terms of the mix, the workability, where would you depart from gypsum? Well, it's not that different, actually. We use exactly the same tools as modern gypsum plasterers use. Very simple hawks and trowels and floats and rules. Yes, the materials are different, but the application process is much the same. It's my firm belief that we could take 
a modern plasterer used to skimming plasterboard and in one hour we could teach them to do a lath and plaster ceiling successfully. And that's how you're applying lime plaster yourselves in, very much in the traditional way with timber laths? Yeah, the core of our business is that we plaster traditional buildings using exactly the same methods, materials and tools as we used originally. By doing so, we achieve the exact same look. Yeah, yeah, got you. And, and in terms of, you, you, you talked about your business there. You're third generation now, aren't you? So was it your father that started this company? Yes, I'm second generation. So when I left school, I started work straight with my father in 1979. My uncle, my brother and my brother-in-law, we all worked together. My father started the business in 1948, just after the Second World War, when he left the RAF. I've now got both of my sons working with me, so they're third generation plasterers, and they're both doing fine. So yeah, three generations so far. What's the appeal of this kind of work? It's a traditional skill. It is a creative process, because of course we don't just plaster the outside of houses, we also create ornate interiors to buildings from all different periods, you know, from Elizabethan in the early beginnings of internal plaster work, right through to Georgian interiors. It's a very rewarding career, I would say. The conditions on site are very good these days. It's very safe, it's very clean, but also it's quite financially rewarding for anybody thinking to come into the industry. And of course, society in general is waking up to the importance of what we call makers, people that create things, craft skills. We're waking up to the need for those things. And I have a theory that we only realise how important something is when it's almost lost. A bit like polar bears, for example, but um, craft skills are the same. You know, We almost lost them 20, 25 years ago, and we spent the last 25 years teaching and spreading the good word about the need for craft skills. You've mentioned decorative plaster work there. That's obviously something you're heavily involved in. Can you talk us through the process of that? So it's, it's lime plaster again, isn't it? And are you carving these panels in situ? Or are you working them together in a workshop? What's some of the process for some of the works you do there? It varies depending on the period. So there are three distinct periods of plaster work in the UK. Plastering internally in a decorative way as we see it only really got going at the end of the 15th century. Prior to that, decorative ceilings are being made out of timber and are very rare because of course if you have a house with a roof you probably at that point have got a fireplace in the middle of the room on the floor and the smoke's drifting up through the roof. So at the end of the 15th century the domestic fireplace was invented and became popular and so of course there was no longer any need for smoke to drift up through the roof and out into the atmosphere so the top of the room could be sealed off hence the use of the word ceiling. So Around about 1500, plaster ceilings start to appear, very simply, often in conjunction with decorative timber work. And then early 16th century, uh, the plasterers begin to come to the fore and are creating some elaborate geometric pattern ceilings. And that goes on then through to the 18th century and the introduction of gypsum and casting. It's a complicated process involving lots and lots of different skill sets, depending on the period of plaster work we're creating. So the earlier stuff, for example, the Elizabethan and Jacobean, is created using very simple timber tools, handmade, to form elaborate geometric mouldings. When we get to the 18th century, we're using gypsum, so the process and the materials change dramatically, as do the tools. 
And then, of course, by the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, fibrous casting is invented, and cornices are then made in workshops or factories and are simply screwed or nailed into place. And that's the most popular process. Most people will know that process today. You're talking about a hugely diverse range of techniques and skills then, depending on period, but also depending on location as well. I mean, there's different styles of plaster around the country, isn't there? I mean, Pargeting and Roman cement. Do you, do you get involved in different vernaculars from different locations? Yes, everything. Yeah. So you're right, yes. If one visits Suffolk, you can't fail to see the cottages with all the beautiful, simple, naive, decorative exteriors. And yes, we do that, we do the more complex Roman cement work. It's just everything. If you can imagine everything to do with an historic building, plaster-wise, that's what we do. You're also much in demand from an educational point of view, aren't you? You run courses online plastering, not just in this country, but far and wide, don't you? Yeah, we've been teaching traditional plastering for the last 30 years or so. First of all, working for groups like the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, teaching their courses, but also for other similar groups and local authorities. Working with Turquoise Mountain Trust, we've visited Transylvania several times. We've also been to uh, Myanmar in Asia a couple of times teaching, and three years ago we were in Kabul in Afghanistan setting up a course there. There's talk of one in the Lebanon coming up, I think, in the next few years. And of course, in a couple of weeks from now, we're in France, in the south of France, teaching 10 delegates on a private course down there. And you've also worked on some very prestigious projects, haven't you? Some very famous buildings. Can you tell us about some of those? We've been really lucky. We've um, had opportunities to work at several royal palaces, including Westminster and Downing Street but also Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, uh, Chatsworth. I forget myself, there's been so many. And I have to remind myself sometimes just how lucky we are to have worked on those buildings and followed in the footsteps of um, such great tradesmen. And it's always a joy. Of course, it can be complicated as well, working on those buildings. Uh, security is obviously very tight. But yeah, we've done some really nice projects in those places. What about working with particular homeowners? This place is destined to be a wedding venue, isn't it? But mm. have you come across property owners where you, you wouldn't necessarily do what they wanted you to do if you've got sort of decorative plaster work and, and they want you to sort of remove it? You, you, there, there's that spab philosophy of sort of less is more. Can that be difficult, yeah. that negotiation with a property owner? Yeah, it can be complicated. There are, of course, laws in place to mm. stop people from taking things down that are listed. When a building is listed, it's not just the facade, it's the, it's the whole of the interior, the whole of the structure, so people can't legally take things down. Yes, of course, sometimes people ask us to do things we don't want to do, and, and we can always walk away. We normally try and advise and guide people, and to be frank, people are normally happy to listen to our advice. I like that kind of early engagement with clients, where we get into the uh, sort of design phase of projects and being involved in that. Because, of course, you know, we have a great deal to bring to a project, not only in our sort of technical skills, but in our understanding of historic buildings. I've been working with historic buildings for 44 years, and my father before me, you know, that's something tangible in that, isn't it? And it's a, it's a fine tradition that's going to carry on with your own children, with your two sons as well. Yes, both William and Jude have followed me into the trade, and uh, the three of us work together now all the time. William did an MVQ3 in heritage plaster work, and Jude's done an MVQ2 
Sadly, during COVID, all of Jude's paperwork has been lost, so we don't know what's happened to that, but we'll get over that. So they're both following me into the trade, yeah. They're both doing really well. They enjoy their work and they enjoy the travelling side of the business. You know, we get to travel around the UK, but also further afield, as we've already said. So far, so good. Well, what would you say to builders who'd like to have an ambition to get into conservation work, working on period properties? Is it necessary for them to do courses, the kind of courses that you run? Is it something they can pick up with the skills that they've already got? Most builders and plasterers will already have the tool skills and they shouldn't be put off by um, the idea of working with different materials. Yes, they should go on courses because the financial implications of having a go yourself and making a mistake are quite frightening, to me anyway. And of course, when we work on an historic building, we're usually working on somebody's most valuable asset and we wouldn't repair the crown jewels without going on a, a course first, would we? So yes, people should always go on a course and get trained up. But the courses are often quite short and not too expensive and good fun, you know, and, and will enable people to expand their catalogue of projects without any stress. So finally then, so what, what, what's the secret to a good conservation project you've talked about the materials working in harmony with each other and as a sort of balance is, is, is that the real secret of it using the right materials yeah the right materials is key and enabling the building to carry on just as it was built and designed to do breathability the softness of materials so that they can flex and move when the building flexes and moves and yeah bringing those materials back into the building is, is the key going forward and you still have a real passion for it, you're still going to carry on. You've obviously been here for 44 years, you're going strong. I'm not sure about going strong. I have no intention of retiring. I enjoy what I do too much. I'm sure the boys would be delighted if I announced my retirement, but uh, no, they're not getting rid of me there. As Philip quite rightly says, we're starting to embrace the makers again, people who possess the craft skills to create high quality work, and that of course includes the building trades. It's financially rewarding and a career path for the creative. Whilst Philip has honed his skills over decades, there's no reason why you can't follow his example. If you fancy learning more about line plastering, Philip runs his own training courses. And you can also visit the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings website. A link to the website can be found in the show notes. Come along to the next Tool Fair and Professional Builder live event, which takes place on the 9th and 10th of March 2023 at Bolton Arena. If you live further south, then you can come to the one at London's Alexandra Palace on the 30th and 31st of March. To see all dates for our regional events, visit www.toolfair.info. Professional Builder is free to the trade at the counters of over 2,500 builders merchant outlets nationwide. There's a digital version available at www.probuildermag.co.uk and you can also sign up to receive every edition by email. There's also the opportunity to get your hands on some great prizes with our free-for-all giveaways feature, full details of which can be found in the magazine and online. Finally, thank you for listening.